welcome to the Technological Podcast. Yeah, awesome. So, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Technological Podcast. And today we brought on Gabby Campania Lanning, who I actually met um, I think back in 2017, we, we started together at IBM. I was a um, product manager. Gabby was joining uh, in the design boot camp. Um, and we had a nice immersive experience over there where we learned all about design thinking and how to build you know, user-centric products, et cetera. Um, but Gabby's now a user experience researcher at Google. And we brought her on because she's you know, an expert. Uh, I've seen some of her stuff online. I've seen her give talks. And, and I think she does a great job at um, articulating the importance of not just uh, user research, but also user, user-centric design. Um, so with that, I'll hand it over to you, Gabby, if you want to just uh, quickly introduce yourself. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Anish. Um, so as you mentioned, we started at IBM together, sort of where I, I guess, started my professional life. Um, I had done some internships. I actually studied architecture undergrad, so moved from more of like physical design to software. Uh, spent three and a half years at IBM here in Austin, still based out of Austin. Um, and I actually had a variety of roles, so we'll get into that a little more later, but definitely came in through design, the UX research discipline. Um, and then I worked at a, a startup in the like B2B food industry, which is like really hot right now with COVID and all the different like food delivery ecosystems. And then currently working at Google as a lead UX researcher um, on different marketing and procurement uh, products. So definitely a wide array of like application areas from AI to procurement to, you know, B2B and B2C consumer spaces, but uh, pretty heavily working on UX research and user-centered design throughout. Awesome. That sounds great. Um, so I think just to kick it off, could you kind of give some background on what it was like interviewing directly at an undergrad for these like designer slash user research uh, roles and kind of how you structured your time in undergrad to optimize yeah. for like these roles? Yeah, I mean, it can definitely be kind of intimidating, especially if you're trying to get like a first professional role at a really large company, just because they are interviewing so many different candidates and they have these kind of aggressive processes. Um, I would say undergrad to be fully transparent. I mean, I studied architecture at UT Austin. So I was planning on becoming an architect um, I think like many people, you know, we don't often pursue what we study undergrad, although we learn a lot from it. So I learned pretty early on that I love design. I love the research process, site planning. I've always kind of been at the intersection of like math and science. Um, but I figured early in my undergrad, actually, that I'd probably need to go to graduate school to transition a little bit more into software and a strategic role. Didn't exactly know what that meant. Definitely did not know the term UX research when I was an undergrad at all. Um, so that was just how quickly the, the pace of this like environment and the context of these roles is changing. Um, but I would say for me, I was more strategic in my master's level program, but you could do this undergrad as well. And I was able to land an internship at IBM while I was in my master's program. And so a lot of these large companies, while it can be intimidating to just like send your resume into the landmine of like thousands of resumes that these companies get. If you do some sort of bootcamp program, it can even be something more like volunteer based where they invite designers to come and learn about what they do, or you do like a formal um, internship. That really was my application process, right? So I got the job from the internship performance and didn't actually have to go through like a formal interview. 
Um, so I definitely recommend, you know, if you're looking to get into big companies, look for ones that have early career development programs and internships, um, because they're definitely using those as hiring funnels and they really look for talent. It's good experience for you too. Maybe it's not a good fit. You know, it's a great testing ground. Yeah, that's so true. I think when we were also recruiting for roles out of undergrad, you know, it's just like your internship is probably going to be your full-time role. At least for me, that happened like junior year, I got my internship and then I converted that to full-time and then senior year, you kind of just focus on your grades and you know, making sure your GPA is all good. But I yeah. think one thing um, I want you to touch on too is a little bit on why you decided to go do your master's and what was, yeah. how did you come to the decision? Like, I don't want to do architecture anymore. Maybe I want to go into this other field of like, you know, UX design and, you know, how did you kind of do the whole master's, uh, I guess, like pipeline or program? Yeah. Yeah. I get asked about this a lot. My, I think my journey at the time that I did it was a little bit more unique, but I'm seeing that it's becoming more common. And so I encourage people to kind of hack the graduate school system, however it works best for them. But um, I was, you know, very much studying architecture. I was having a lot of success in the program and I, I liked it. But when I interned in an architecture firm, I just didn't really enjoy the, the reality of the profession, right? So a lot of times what we learn in school is, you know, not the reality that we might experience in that job day to day. And at the time I was familiar with like frog design and IDEO. So these like kind of fancy uh, consultancies that were really the pioneers of like human-centered design. Pretty much anyone in any design discipline from car design to architecture like knew about these groups. And so I started to think, oh, maybe I wanna be more of like a design strategist and be more of like a consultant and focus on that fuzzy front end phase, the conceptual stage and focus less on whether it's a building or an iPhone app or a health device, right? So um, that's kind of where I started. I, again, I had no idea of the term UX research, honestly, until maybe the first six months into my graduate school program. And that's what my entire career is, right? So sometimes we don't exactly know exactly where our path is gonna lead. Um, but because I knew I was interested in design strategy, I started looking for other internship opportunities. Again, like I mentioned, using internships to learn what you do and don't like. And I took on a role as an intern at a B2B um, SaaS startup here in Austin. So it was 40 people. I had never worked with engineers before. I had never you know, worked on like things like Scrum or Agile or anything like that. I was the only designer at the company. It was like marketing, uh, sales and engineering, right? But in that space, I really learned that triad working model and understood the value that design can have in software. So that was a little bit kismet. That was me going on a student job portal, finding an internship, going for it. Um, again, I think that's really important because when you're in school, you have access to things like those internship portals for UT students. Like do an internship your first or second year in a field that isn't like, you know how you mentioned your junior year, you got that internship and then the job, like do an internship in something completely not what you're maybe thinking you want to do, especially in your first or second summer during college, because you, you learn a lot. So the combination of wanting to do design strategy, doing an internship at a B2B SaaS company before I left undergrad, um, I graduated undergrad early and went directly to graduate school. So I've had a lot of questions about that as well. Um, most people in my program had worked at least for three, if not closer to five or eight years before going back and getting their master's. But I think, you know, the master's path is all about what you want to do. Like I knew I wanted to be in a career that was not architecture. So I needed to get my master's right after undergrad because I wanted to get into that path, right? If you're not exactly sure and you want to maybe work in an area that you've been educated in first, like do that. But I definitely don't think there are rules anymore about like not going directly to um, 
graduate school. I've seen that change a lot, even in the last like two years. I went to graduate school in 2015. Um, and then it was a little bit like, are you sure you want to go directly? And I was like, yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> I know what I want to do. And I know that I don't have the skills to do it yet. So I'm going to go. Um, but even then I didn't go in thinking I'd be a UX researcher at IBM or Google. Um, I thought I'd be a design strategist at, at Frog or IDEO at the time. Nice. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice around, um, you know, trying to get internships in just a broad array of things or just yeah. taking your your interests that you might have throughout like coursework and in mm -hmm. college and actually trying to apply them because, you know, I, I know for for me, I did a software engineering internship and I studied computer science and they were like different worlds of, right. um, uh, you know, exposure. So um yeah great to great to i think tackle tackle it that way um so one other thing you know we've we've um come across is like the focus on a portfolio mm -hmm. of of projects you've worked on especially in design because it's a lot more of a you know creative visual right. uh, type of role what are your thoughts there or like you know how did you kind of go about that did did you have a portfolio when you started you know inter or where we're pursuing internships uh, in design uh, or for people who aren't for, or aren't fortunate enough to get uh, you know an internship but look for full-time roles right 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 what what's your advice for that yeah i mean absolutely like you you do have to have some form of portfolio it's really interesting because i feel like portfolios are almost like fashion like there's the trends always change every couple of years so like a couple of years ago um I think you both are more in the kind of like product management space. So I'm not sure if this applies as much, but for a lot of designers or creatives, you know, everybody had their little bar charts or their little uh, donut charts showing like how good they were at Adobe Illustrator. They were making their resumes like really colorful and like graphic and basically like a viz visual design or visualization design exercise. Right. And that was like very trendy. So I remember hopping on that train and now it's all about like, let's just have a really clean resume. Like my resume should basically just look like somebody who's an, an academic resume, basically like very basic. So sometimes with these things like portfolios, you have to take advice with a grain of salt, always do like some Google searches, look at people on LinkedIn that have jobs that you admire and like go seek out their websites. Um, I don't know, you know, a lot of people will send me their portfolios. Like, I don't know why they're not stalking other people more often. Like if you think someone has a cool job, I'm sure their website link is on their LinkedIn, like go check them out. You know, you can really see like what's trending and what's working effectively and maybe what's not. So you definitely do need some form of portfolio. I think what that means has changed over the years, but it's still present. For me coming from an architecture background, I always had like a physical portfolio, like literally printed on like vellum paper. So I kind of moved from that to having a website and I have redesigned my portfolio at least eight times, like every Christmas break from undergrad through grad school, I think I redesigned my portfolio. That's what I did over Christmas break. So it's time investment. It's not easy. My biggest piece of advice is you do have to have like substance in your portfolio. So if you're finding that your undergrad is not giving you the content for a portfolio for a job role that you want, or you feel like you're not getting, it's like a chicken and egg where you can't get the internship to build your portfolio because you, you know, don't have the portfolio to get the internship. Um, you can do volunteer activities, you can get involved with community groups and apply user centered design methods to helping like a nonprofit like you have to be scrappy if the program that you're in isn't providing you with the experience because it's just not an excuse. When you apply to a company like IBM or Google, you have to apply with a portfolio. It's as required as the name field right so there's just like no wiggle room there. 
how visual versus like text-based and storytelling, especially in the field of UXR, uh, UX research is highly variable. I come from more of a design background, so I have some design skills, but I'm certainly not like the visual designers we worked with initially at IBM. I'm not that talented, so I don't even try to like be that fancy. Just do what feels right for you. Some UX researchers have like a medical research background or they have like a data analyst background. Tell your story through data. Like you don't have to feel like it has to look like anybody else's portfolio, but it has to communicate your process, your purpose, the outcomes and impact, right? And you need at least like three to five really solid examples of that. Um, and, you know, when people send me their portfolios, usually the number one critique I have is that it's just so broad in general. Like, I don't even know, are you trying to be a strategist? Are you trying to be a UX designer, a UI designer, a researcher? Like really make it clear with your portfolio what job you're applying to and why you're a good fit for that role. Um, don't try to have it be a catch-all because, you know, same with resumes. Like you have to tailor your cover letters. You have to tailor your uh, portfolio to really be specific to what you want to do. So it's, it's a requirement for sure. And everybody gets the content they need for their portfolio a different way, but um, it's definitely work. It's rewarding, but it's work to put it together for sure. Yeah, I think being focused in your recruiting efforts is one of the most important you know, aspects people need when they go yeah. recruit because otherwise recruiters or even like hiring managers are going to see you and they're going to be like, oh, they don't know what they want to do. They're just trying to do anything. And, you know, if I give them a job, they'll probably leave in, in a month or two if they get something better. So, yeah, I see it all the time. I think there's this misconception, especially from people graduating from graduate programs, similar to what I studied. They're like, well, I love strategy and I love UX research, but I also love design. And it's like, you can do all of those things. If you get hired at a company like IBM or Google or a great like startup, you can do all of those things. But in order to get that higher letter, you just have to show that you can do one thing super well. And then once you get inside and you get with your collaborative team, you can definitely have that elbow room to be like, hey, I'd actually like to help this product manager roadmap. Hey, I'm actually like, I can mock up some wireframes. Like, let me like, you know, you totally can do that as a UX researcher, um, but you have to present yourself as a UX researcher proper in the case of UX research or UX design proper to get that first job. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions I see personally um, from a lot of people recently is they're, they're trying to be this like perfect, I do everything, but really the company just wants you to do one thing well to get you through that hiring process. Um, and you need to be passionate about what that one thing is, obviously. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I have to ask, is that a, like a big reason kind of why you chose IBM uh, is because you thought, you know, like you can go to IBM or like, you know, big tech in, in general, and you have optionality once you get inside the company versus like going to a startup where you're just going to be more hyper-focused on one or two things. Like what was kind of like yeah. your rationale behind like big tech versus startup and like IBM itself? Totally. That is definitely one of, one of the reasons. I mean, when you get into a larger company, it's basically like if you want to change jobs, you don't have to leave the company. You know, they have programs set up. It's not like it, it's the drop of a hat or anything, but you can explore other jobs without leaving the safety of your role. You can literally change job roles. You can change business units and it can feel like an entirely different company and challenge in the same job role. There's a lot of flexibility there. Um, my like personal relationship with IBM was a little bit more like unique and personable. The chair of my thesis used to be the head of design of IBM back in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s. He was kind of an IBM legend. He designed all the original like ThinkPads. 
Um, and he was my thesis chair. And so I learned a lot about like the history and the legacy of the company. And so I kind of fell in love with IBM in that way. And then I interned during the graduate school process and then came into the IBM ecosystem. So that was a little bit more of an organic relationship. In general though, I just, I really like the problems of big tech. I've worked in both startups and big companies um, all in the tech space. And I just, I enjoy big tech. Like some people I could, you know, it's too big. It's so many employees and like red tape and I love it. Like Anish knows, like I love this stuff. Like I just, I have a lot of fun um, navigating those challenges. Whereas I think the challenges of startups are often like resource-based, time-based, and there's some really smart, uh, you know, passionate people that love those challenges. And I think that I just thrive there a little bit less, but I think, um, you know, when you go into these larger companies, you do have a lot of opportunity for change and transition uh, without leaving the company itself. And I think that's a really, really cool thing. If you go into like consulting, you're often really pigeonholed into like your expertise area. So um, when I was looking at, you know, maybe doing something more like an IDEO or a frog, I was just more drawn to the, the complex problems of like enterprise tech. Great. Um, so all very useful, useful, uh, I think, knowledge. And I, I think the, the biggest thing that stuck out to me there was like play your your strengths to the role that the company's hiring, right? Totally. Like for. Um, so yeah, no, that's great. So let's fast forward a little bit um, to your to your experience starting at starting at IBM. So initially you started off as a user experience researcher. Right. So right. can we just get a little bit of knowledge or, or just background information? Like, you know, what is a user experience researcher? Where does that fit into the product development life cycle? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what did your kind of day to day role look like? Yeah, this is like what I've tried to explain to my parents like four times. And they're just like, <laughs> we don't know what you do, but we're proud of you. Um, so user experience researcher, I, if somebody really is having a hard time understanding the role, I because I've had this experience a lot where stakeholders, business stakeholders are just like, I'm not really sure what this is or how it's going to impact my timeline. Um, I, I really am like an investigator. I go out and I get answers through mainly qualitative methods, sometimes quantitative methods. I spend time with people. There's an element of you know, like that investigative journalism, but you're also a part of the design team. So you have this lens towards like whatever feedback you're hearing, you want to make or do or act on it in some way through product or software. Um, user researchers, again, are usually like heavy in the soft skills. They do a lot of qualitative feedback um, day to day. You know, you'd have a lot of user interviews where you're showing prototypes. Maybe you're asking open-ended questions or scenario-based questions. You're basically using whatever artifacts or means you can to help move the, you know, development of software forward um, to answer any questions or surface any potential like landmines that maybe we hadn't thought about because we are not our users. And especially why I love doing B2B work is I'm never my users. Like my users are like, you know, advanced machine learning engineers or my users are purchasers for multi-million dollar contracts. Like that's not me, right? I, you know, so a lot of researchers work at somewhere like a Spotify where maybe they can resonate more with the user because they themselves are a user of Spotify. So the discipline definitely varies based on context. I mean, the context is, is key and it also varies on the individual. So I'm coming from a design background. I'm gonna more heavily translate user feedback to wireframes, to architecture decisions, to things, because that's like how my mind works. 
some other user researchers that came from a more true like academic research background. I work with a lot of researchers at Google that have PhDs. That's a completely different track of training. And they are much better than I am at like quantitative analysis or some of these more academic methods. And so there's a lot of osmosis of the different UXR types. Um, you definitely don't need to be intimidated. Whatever your background is, you're going to have strengths that could enable you to be a UX researcher and you're going to have areas that you're, you're going to need to learn um, because there's no undergrad degree as of yet in UX research. Um, so, and then the day-to-day -day is a lot of talking with people, you know, being an extrovert, I think is helpful, or at least a professional extrovert, uh, recruiting people to talk to you, a lot of readouts and playbacks of what you find out to executive stakeholders, team members. I work most closely with product management and UX design, as well as all of my business stakeholders. So you're really in the mix of everybody on a product team. And then lastly, in terms of the uh, software product development lifecycle, you know, UX research is paramount to do upfront, right? Determining if this is even a good product market fit, you know, what kind of users do we really understand um, the nuance of their behaviors and how this product is going to implicate effect or improve that doesn't always happen. <laughs> so sometimes UX research is brought in after a product's far been launched, you know, and you try to fix it in a little bit more of an iterative way versus like at the conceptual stage. But UX research is present throughout the entire product development lifecycle or should be. Um, but you might be working in a little bit of like quicker, quicker sprints if you're on like a regular release product versus doing a lot of upfront um, heavy lift work if you're trying to launch something entirely new that has like no context um, or awareness. So that's kind of a, a high level. But if somebody's really confused, I'm like, just think of me as the UX designer. Like if you can't understand, like that person is my right hand. Like I work with the UX designer all day, every day um, and the product manager uh, very closely. So. Awesome. Yeah, I think great. that was, I, go ahead. I was just going to quickly say, I think that that's great. And the reason I ask, you know, where does user research fit into the product development lifecycle? Because, you know, I think as, as product management and just as a as business in general, right? Like you want to de-risk the user problem um, right. as much as possible and as early as possible. Right. And in that way, you're, you're building solutions that solve a certain problem as opposed to, uh, you know, building solutions um, that like, you know, you might think are problems or, or might Trying not to find the solve. problems later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, great. Go, go ahead, Avi. Sorry. Yeah, I, I just think one thing you said was really interesting where you're talking about how you're solving or like trying to understand the use case for people that aren't like you. So you mentioned mm -hmm. how you do research, user research for like, machine learning engineers versus like, you know, like you said, working at Spotify where you use Spotify every day. So I'm really curious, how do you get into their shoes and understand yeah. their problems and, and how do you like really empathize with them? You know, cause I, that's like a core component of your job. So I'm really curious to hear more about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of the ways that I, I do that, um, part of the other part of it is sharing it back with the team and making sure everybody kind of feels it too, because the UX researchers should never be like the gatekeeper of that knowledge. They should be the evangelist and like getting everybody. I bring stakeholders into my user calls or product management into my user calls. Um, but this is actually one of my favorite parts of the job, which is why I love B2B so much, a lot of times I'll actually start internally. So if you work at a, a large company like IBM or Google and you're making tech software, um, more than likely you actually work with 
some employees that fit more of the archetype of the end external users. So I became a, a big kind of proponent of joining these data science chats at IBM. I would actually go and give talks at WeWork about IBM just so I could meet data scientists. I knew that I never needed to know data science as well as a data scientist, but I needed to understand like, you know, what made them nervous? Like what makes you excited? Like what's a success in your book? Like what does your browser look like during a work day and have people share their screens with me? Um, during kind of pre-COVID times, you could actually go and follow somebody around their work day, kind of see the different conversations that they had and the collaboration points. Now, sometimes I'll do like virtual shadowing where they'll just invite me to all their meetings for that day. Um, and oftentimes I don't really understand, like if it's a really technical role, that's fine. I'm more looking to like, who are the stakeholders on the call? Like, what are they being asked to deliver on? How can software enable that? So you just kind of get obsessed um, with these people's lives in, in a professional way. Um, and you just want to know more of that like emotion, like range of emotion and things that would make their lives easier versus more difficult, who they collaborate with. Um, little like nuggets of insight that sometimes get overlooked when, you know, a very talented PM is making a roadmap or going through all these different considerations with engineering. You know, they have this whole other set of dependencies that they're thinking about. And so you're kind of there to be like, wait, wait, but they actually always want to collaborate with this person because they're actually the owner of the data and they can't share that data set. And they're like, oh, well, that's going to implicate how we set up the, the you know, system architecture. And it's, it's from that very human centered place, but there's nothing like no fancy method, like no new method, in my opinion, in UXR, there's always great new methods and ideas, as well as academic, but nothing beats just spending time with people. I mean, you have to be on calls with them, talking to them regularly. I would meet with users like at least once a month, if not twice a month. Um, they, they were basically like my coworkers, right? So um, spending a lot of time with users, showing them prototypes, getting their reactions to things, shadowing them in meetings, asking them emotional questions that we sometimes don't even get asked at work. Like what keeps you up at night? What makes you nervous? What do you brag to your parents about? You know, that shows you where they find validation in work. Um, so those are some of the ways that I do that. Yeah, great. And just to tag on to that, like B2B pointer, especially in enterprise, right? I think mm -hmm. one of the, one of the challenges I've, I've mainly worked in, in enterprise as well. And one of the challenges is like, as opposed to building for, for a product like Spotify, your, your users aren't just like, you know, floating around like your friends and family, right? These can right. be some very deeply technical users. And sometimes clients are not easy to just jump on a call with because of True. legal reasons or NDAs or, or whatever, right? And so the point you touched on around even talking to internal users, right? Yeah, Within yeah. your own company um, is a great way to de-risk some of your hypotheses or, or mm -hmm. uh, things you think are true. Um, and help them, you know, validate that so you can build a, a better product for that end user. Yeah, and I've also yeah. had like building that internal network, um, like these data scientists, machine learning engineers, they'll often say things like, oh, I have a good friend at X company who'd be willing to talk with you as long as they sign the legal form because they're, they have their own tapped in network. You don't need to like create your own net new um, and they can give you like kind of proxy users externally if you're not able to talk to a client at a certain stage in the sales cycle, for example, um, for, you know, Kind of like business reasons but there's always a way to, to connect with people and like i mentioned even uh doing meetups i would go to like local meetups in austin for these data scientists they were all there and i would ask them about their roles i wasn't showing them like my product but i was you know learning about their field and what made somebody a good data scientist versus just a satisfactory one um and how we could enable that in software so definitely tapping into those networks and being a little bit scrappy is important 
Cool. So going into growth, right? As a user researcher, you you went on to become a senior user researcher. What does that like look like? What kinds of skills do you really need to excel at? How do your responsibilities kind of change? And what does that like, you know, kind of ladder look like? I would say it's really, I wish it was a more simple answer, but it's really dependent on the company. So at IBM, for example, I personally felt like when I was able to get promoted or grow through like a couple different levels, it was more about my ability to manage a project, uh, manage a team, even though it wasn't their, their manager proper, um, really work with stakeholders, like manage, uh, you know, expectations, deliver on product releases, um, bring a good sense of collaboration with engineering and with product management. It was more about that skill set that um, helped me get promoted. It wasn't, it wasn't so much about having a certain like level of UX research skill. It was just like the efficacy of my research in terms of the product success, like VPs of product wanted to hear about our product, right? It wasn't about VPs of user research, for example. So I feel like at IBM, it was more that ability to present well, to storytell, to articulate the findings in user research. And that, that was a really great way to progress. Companies like Google, I think they have a stronger growth program, in my personal opinion, for individual contributors, meaning that people at Google and their careers stay in individual contributor roles far more senior if forever um, versus at other large companies, you often move into people management or project management, right? So I feel like at Google and other companies that have a similar ideology about growing individual contributor seniority, moving up is more about really moving up in that discipline. So maybe you've mastered a certain user research practice that you've scaled to an entire business unit, or maybe um, you've been able to like evangelize an academic method in an enterprise forum. Like it's more about your craft and less just about your ability to kind of be an informal leader. So it really depends on your company. And I, and I think that it's a, I think it's a creative process figuring out how to excel and grow in your career. Like you should view that with the same sense of like creativity and purpose that you view your product or your, you know, marketing campaign or whatever it is that you're doing. Learn your ladder, learn the criteria, figure out how to master that criteria if you want to get a promotion in a way that's genuine to you and find informal mentors to help you get there. But there's no like one size fits all. I, I truly feel like a senior level designer or researcher at IBM is no less senior, but is very different than I would say a senior level researcher or designer at Google, or at least they could be, you know, uh, rate graded kind of differently in terms of how they got to that seniority. Yeah, that makes sense. And I really like how you touched on the uh, individual contributor part, because actually at my last company, um, we also had that problem where like you're seeing a rise of individual contributors where like 20 years ago, people are just going to go into like mid-level management or upper management. Right. And now it's like, I'm in this one role with this specific functionality and I'm really good at it. And I don't want to move, but yeah. I also want to make sure my career goes up. So I thought, Gross. yeah, I think, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I'm really curious to hear about how to jump was from like IBM to, uh, am I pronouncing it right? Olo uh -huh. or like, how was like, you know, making that jump from like a bigger, you know, large company to more of like a startup -y, smaller company. Yeah, it, it was definitely interesting. I had, you know, obviously worked at that startup that was like 40 people when I was in college, but, um, and then I had worked at a consultancy that was maybe a couple thousand people. So 
you know, I'd been three and a half years at IBM, which is over 300,000 people. I was very used to that scale. And actually right before I like my last role at IBM, before I went to Olo, I was a chief of staff for the head of data and AI at IBM, which was about a 6,000 person business unit. So it was a very different role for me coming from more of a design user research background, like a lot of like business exposure, a lot of really, really useful knowledge um, in the time that I was in that role. When I went to Olo, also a very exciting company, they, they went to IPO um, a couple months ago, which was super exciting. Uh, they had a lot of really strong leaders and a lot of smart people. It was about 400 people when I joined. So I, I loved my experience there, but to be honest, I, again, I'm just, I don't know what it is. I just like big, bigger companies. Um, I did feel like it was harder to just get a sense of what the priorities were, the direction. I was so much more used to like a business unit level problem. Like this is what my BU is doing. Like what's your BU doing versus like the whole company, you know, was smaller than, is a 10th the size of the business unit that my former boss was, was in charge of. So it was definitely a shift. And it's kind of funny because I think most people always feel the shift the other way. They're like, I know this is a huge company. Like it's a little bit scary or daunting. So I think it's like whatever you're used to. It's been funny coming to Google from Olo. People at Google are like, we know Google's a huge company. And I'm like, it's still like a third the size of IBM. It's still pretty, pretty small. Um, of course it's not, but um, so yeah, it was a transition, but I think more about the day to day. I mean, a lot of things persist. I think once you get some good tech experience under your belt, whether you're working in marketing, product management, design, finance, you know, you'll find a lot of the same patterns and paradigms. A lot of the questions that product managers brought up were the same. A lot of the concerns that engineering had, a lot of the insights that they had were the same. Um, so again, I think, you know, give yourself the opportunity to have those different experiences. And then once you feel good about like, this is what I like, then, you know, keep your career on that track. But I'm glad that I explored it in between. Um, but I would say that I'm more comfortable in, in big enterprise. So just enjoy the, the culture more, maybe, I'm not sure. Great, yeah. In, in my next or next question, I think you kind of touched on this, but, but you got back into user research now at Google. Um, you know, how has that been? I guess, what, what products are you focused on um, over there? Yeah, yeah. So when I was at IBM, most of my time was on artificial intelligence products. I worked a lot on computer vision, which is AI for image and video data. And I also worked on um, some like language and text parsing, uh, different software programs. Here at Google, I work primarily on marketing and procurement tooling. So the different tools that Google marketers need to run campaigns, to get contracts signed, to work with vendors and agencies, to assess the performance of their campaigns, you know, to use smarter data to drive more effective, you know, ads or media. Oh, collaborate a lot with the, the YouTube teams. Um, so definitely, you know, that's what's funny about user research is like you don't actually need to know about the space that you're going to do user research in. Like, honestly, you don't. And it's such a weird thing for people interviewing. Like they think if they're interviewing for Google Cloud, they need to like go on the website and like learn all about the Google Cloud infrastructure. And like, well, that's great. You really don't. I mean, you'll learn that on the job. Like you really do learn it on the job. What you need to know is like what methods to use when, um, how you're gonna communicate your research effectively, you know, how to partner with your product manager, um, you know, what methods work better in which contexts, you know, are you doing like, I have a lot of internal users as well as a lot of my users now are actually clients 
like Google is their client, right? So they are agencies. So that's kind of a, an interesting relationship to want to respect and, and navigate properly. So as a user researcher, you need to have all of those skills, but you will learn about whether you get dropped on a data science product, a cloud infrastructure product, a you know backend server product, or um, something like a Spotify, you know, your skills will still persist. I think that's just like something that seems weird until you you do it. Cause it's like, how could I do this job if I don't know about the, the software space? Um, but yeah, I've worked on all different kinds of, of products and services, so. Yeah, I think I think that's really good insight, especially like having the skills part, like, you know, right. skills is the most important thing. Um, so I think this was like a really good podcast. Uh, so thank you, Gabby, for coming on and, you know, giving us the rundown on user research yeah. and, you know, like your career path and how you pivoted from architecture to going to like, like this new whole world of tech and like user research and then you're interfacing with like technical people and just empathizing with them. So yeah, thank you for like your time and you know, coming on. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is awesome. I wish there was a podcast like this a couple of years ago. I am still like learning what certain roles are. Even the field of user research has changed and grown so much over the past few years. I just can't even imagine. I think like next up is like conversation architects and conversation UI designers. It's like, what is that? Um, so I think this is, is really helpful that you all are reaching out to people and learning. So appreciate being on here. Yeah, we'll have to bring you on one more time because I feel like we could probably go for like another hour, frankly. <laughs> cool. Sounds so. good.